Hey, it's Cam. Welcome back to another episode of This Might Be Helpful, and I sincerely hope that it is. It's been some time since we had a solo episode. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be back. My self-expression is coming back online after a period of deep learning, and there are periods of expansion that we experience, and periods of, not contraction, but the condensing of information, the organizing of information. And it can be challenging to express and teach and communicate ideas before they've settled into your network of understanding. Sometimes we learn a fact, a little piece of information that fits right into the grid, and it can be easily expressed and communicated as soon as it's learned. Sometimes we learn something that changes the way in which we see things. And so all it is that you know, all it is that you see goes through a disruption, an evolution of sorts. And so I'm learning to honor these phases. I'm learning to honor these ebbs and flows of expression. As I've mentioned before, content is a game of longevity. Education is a game of longevity. You win if you continue, and in order to continue, you have to find ways that are sustainable. Identifying what is force and what is power. I'm not here to speak for the sake of hearing my own voice. I'm not here to speak if I have nothing to say. I would rather wait and allow what needs to be said to make itself known in a way that I have to act on. So, with that being said, let's dive into today's topic. We are exploring the Yoga Sutras, in particular the Eight Limbs of Yoga. Before I go deep into this, I want to give a thank you, a heartfelt thank you, to my yoga teachers, Jay and Kylie, who are facilitating my yoga teacher training, of which we're about four weeks in. I've done university degrees, I've studied nursing, I've studied a lot of different things. And it is rare to come into contact with a style of teaching as devoted and heartfelt and excited as Jay and Kylie from Wild Heart Yoga Tribe in Cairns. So today I will be referencing some of the materials that they have collected in order to share these learnings with their students. And as I go through this, recognizing that I am not an expert whatsoever in this domain, but through this process of expression, I can understand more of what it is I am speaking about. It is the Feynman technique. If you want to learn something, try and teach it. And so this podcast episode is not just about me sharing some interesting ideas. It's also a process of me trying to learn through that process of expression myself. Now, the Western perspective of yoga is that it is a healthy activity to engage in for strength, flexibility, health, well-being, stress reduction, etc. 
And while all of that is good, absolutely, the actual movement component of yoga is a small but notable aspect of a vast utilitarian branch of a pliable philosophy developed through the ages. This umbrella of utilitarian philosophy, the eight-limbed yoga path, is overall a sequential style of teachings delivered in the form of succinct and effective aphorisms that the student may practice towards the journey of liberation, moksha, enlightenment, freedom from the mental modifications of mind, i.e. citta vrittis. In Sanskrit, we might use the term citta vritti nirodaha, which translates into freedom from mental modifications, the fluctuations of mind that obstruct and distort our connection with ultimate reality, with Atman, with Brahma, with consciousness, God, source, the ever-abiding true nature of capital self. And asana, the physical poses associated with yoga, is one of these eight limbs. Today, we're going to be exploring the first of these limbs, the yamas. What we're doing here, and why I think you're maybe listening to this podcast, is that you likely have the same question sitting at the cradle of your soul as I do. And that question is, what's going on? What is reality? What am I? How does this work? And there are many paths that have been laid out for us to follow, right? We actually don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are paths of devotion, paths of love, paths with folds, stages, principles, levels, paths without paths, paths that are direct, paths that are indirect and only experienced through experimentation. And I am a lover of paths. I love to explore the wisdom that has been generated and accumulated through the trials and errors of human experience translated into wisdom that we can apply in our modern lives. But part of this process is actually applying it, taking ideas and integrating them into our own existence so that we may gain the experiential realization of what it is these paths describe, taking ourselves out of the misty world of concept into the experiential reality the reality in which thoughts manifest into physicality, the reality in which we make direct contact with a truth so visceral and palpable and sensory that it becomes truth, it becomes understanding, not intellectualized as we are doing here, but something felt and through that feeling known. So... Keeping that in mind, 
As per usual, none of this here is to convince you or tell you what is, but more continually laying out these concepts and ideas so that you may apply them in your own life and see where they fit into your path. Because while there are paths to follow, the path is ultimately one person wide and that person is yourself. And so I'm a believer in resonance, allowing resonance and curiosity and connection to guide how we interact with our practice, going deep into that resonance, because that resonance is a signifier that there is something within you that that idea or concept is connecting to, going deep on that. And then if we lose resonance or if we gain resonance in some other field, some other concept, some other idea, giving ourselves permission to flow with that, recognizing the impermanence of existence, there is no expectation that you feel the same about anything forever. And the more we apply ourselves to these various paths, the more we have in our toolkit, the more we have in our map of reality. Ultimately, that is what I'm trying to do here is build out my own map of reality, my own understanding of where we fit within the cosmos. So today we'll be exploring the ultimate path of enlightenment, the eight limbs of yoga developed by ancient Swami Paranjali, or sorry, Patanjali, collated by the ancient Swami Patanjali. The sutra translates into thread, a thread upon which beads of wisdom may be hung. And they are a series of succinct and concise aphorisms one may practice to become liberated from all that obstructs our complete unification and harmony with our ultimate self. The eight limbs of yoga, contrary to popular thinking, which might associate yoga with movement and movement only, the eight limbs are a series of practices that help to purify and still the mind in preparation for meditation, with the ultimate goal of that meditation being samadhi, which is absorption in that highest self-absorption in consciousness, free from any of the mental fluctuations that currently cloud our perception of reality. So, a quick overview of the full eight limbs. We have yamas, which are social restraints, guidelines for how we engage with others. We have the nayamas, which are personal restraints or guidelines for how we engage and observe ourselves. From there, we go into asana, which is the movement aspect of yoga. We have pranayama, which is the control of breath. Pratyahara, which is the withdrawal of senses. Dharana, which is developing of concentration towards a single point of attention. Then we have dhyana, which is the continuous flow of experience. So when single-pointed concentration is achieved, we flow into dhyana, which is the continuous flow of experience. And from dhyana, that beautiful flow of meditation, we may reach samadhi, which is the complete absorption and unification with our highest selves. And liberation from all that obstructs our connection with the truth, with the divine, and with ultimate reality. 
these limbs may be practiced sequentially and it is logical to do so. It feels intuitive as we will find. But they also operate synergistically, holistically. This is a holistic framework for approaching life in a way that reduces our suffering, enhances our joy, and ultimately connects us to our core essence. So yamas translates into restraint, social behavior, ethics. They are guidelines for how we engage with others, but like all generative philosophical ideas, they are to be applied within, allowing changes within to then reflect in how we interact with the external. Ideas like this, philosophical ideas, are meant to be embodied, turned into action, turned into new ways of perceiving. So keeping in mind that these principles, if we are to effectively apply them to our lives, that application is done by turning our gaze inwards and identifying areas of our life where these things can be applied. The first of the five yamas is ahimsa, non-harming. So ahimsa is known as the fundamental yama, that which creates the foundation from which all the other yamas blossom. And as you will see, each yama supports the prior and the next. And once we integrate all of them, they act as a cohesive framework for removing that which does not serve in our lives. Ahimsa translates into non-harming. It is the social restraint that teaches non-harming, non-violence, compassion, reverence, and love. Ultimately, it is the absence of harmful intention and a mindset oriented towards forgiveness and the ownership of our own role in the perpetuation of harm. Harm towards others, harm towards all that is sentient, or harm towards ourselves. Understand that harm may present in many different formats. In order to discern where we are experiencing or perpetuating harm, we have to open up our definitions of what harm is, coming closer to the truth of our experience. Because harm can occur in thought, word, and deed. Thinking about your own experience and using this as a tool of inquiry to see where there is harm occurring in your life. Harm within relationships, harm within habits, harm within self-talk, harm within how you relate to yourself. We can also look at this as areas in which we are being harmed, areas in life where we may be taken advantage of, where we are tolerating behavior and relationships that are ultimately causing us some form of distress, some form of dis-ease. Through ahimsa, non-harming, the practitioner can begin consciously transforming the energies of pain and hurt into love and forgiveness and compassion. For we perpetuate our own harm when we refuse to forgive. We perpetuate our own harm when we hold on to resentment because that energy 
does not go directly to that source of resentment. The source of resentment is within us. And when we do not forgive and release that resentment, we hold onto it, even if it was not us who conducted the original harm. Ahimsa offers us an opportunity to gain insight into areas of life where harm is occurring. And we can begin to analyze thought, word, and deed and enable us to release harm occurring in our lives. These are going to be brief overviews, by the way, because there's so much to get into. There's eight limbs. Next, we have satya. Satya translates into truthfulness or non-lying. Like ahimsa, satya is practiced in thought, word, and deed. Satya asks us how much of the truth, the truth, we can come into contact with without numbing it or running away. What is the core of what I'm feeling? What is the truth of what I am thinking? Is my word spoken in harmony with satya? In harmony with truth? Or am I not being truthful? And am I not being open to what is? Am I creating my own distortions through the maintenance of storylines that bolster the walls of the defensive ego and thus blind us from actuality. Satya, again, is something that can now be built off of ahimsa because truth can be painful, but avoiding pain can be harmful. So if we bring non-harming ahimsa into satya, truth, we can be more truthful with what areas in our lives, in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our actions, our habits, our behaviors, are harmful. Satya empowers us to get closer to that truth. And the closer we get to that truth, the more empowered we are to move and flow with that truth. Through the preservation of self, the preservation of body, the preservation of mind, the preservation of peace, we can use ahimsa and satya together to begin analyzing and discerning these areas in our life that we are allowing to continue despite their potentially detrimental effects. Understanding the truth of harm, knowing that we may speak this truth to release said harm, and we begin to see the synergy of these principles emerge. Next, we have asteya. Asteya translates into non-stealing. And like the previous yamas, asteya serves as a powerful tool to bring awareness into the shadows of our experience, the areas in our life in which theft is occurring. Theft of resources, sure, that's an obvious one, but what about theft of time, theft of attention, theft of peace? Theft of happiness, theft of idea, theft of creativity, theft of connection, relationships that no longer serve and steal our energy, habits that do not heal and so steal our health, 
roles and commitments that we signed up to that steal our motivation and purpose for being here. Astea asks us to become aware of what it is we may be stealing from others, what we may be stealing from ourselves, and what of ours we are allowing to be stolen. Bringing in the prior yamas, non-harming, and truthfulness, we can use those to discern what areas of life are experiencing theft. Because to thief, to steal our peace, is to harm our happiness, and the truth of that can be discerned and spoken and acted upon. With ahimsa, non-harming, and satya, truthfulness, the application of asteya becomes more intuitive. You are more empowered to wield truth against theft, for you will not perpetuate harm. Is it making sense? From Asteya, we move on to Brahmacharya. Now, Brahmacharya may be translated into Brahmic conduct, or the behavior of a Brahmin, Brahman being the esteemed ascetic in union with Brahma, God, the Absolute. But the principle that Brahmacharya represents may be referred to as celibacy or right use of energy. This relates to our sensory cravings, to how we respond to how we feel. Do we allow how we feel to take over who and what we are? Or do we have the space to consciously respond to said energy and transform it in a way that serves? This might be discerning between hunger and the need to eat. Hunger being an emotionally driven experience that may stem from a slight sensation of needing to eat, but then transforms and transpires due to boredom, due to wanting some kind of satiation, due to just the pleasure of sensation. Now, something to keep in mind throughout the practice of all of these concepts is that there is no right and wrong here. There is no right and wrong when it comes to what harm is. There is no right and wrong when it comes to truth. There is no right and wrong when it comes to what you perceive of theft. That is not these concepts' job to tell you what is right and wrong. These are not supposed to give you absolute. They are supposed to tune you into your inner knowing because you do know what the right use of your energy may be. But the habitual use of energy can be a powerful thing to overcome. So brahmacharya being the management of one's response to sensory cravings, I'm, I'm looking at brahmacharya as the intersection of stimuli and response. It is the point at which energy may be transformed. It is the space between two thoughts. It is the breath that offers responsiveness over reactivity. It is the point at which you become 
the technician of your own energy, rather than something caught in the whirlwind of biological vices and habits. That practitioner, which applies brahmacharya in their own life, may be said to have mastery over urge. Are you the master of your urges? I say this not as somebody who is, but just as somebody who is prompting that question. Because all of these principles really serve as better questions. They act as a holistic framework that we can apply in every moment. So brahmacharya is how you respond to how you feel. And we can use this as this cognitive intervention before we act on whatever it is that we are feeling, right? Say you feel aroused and there is maybe a habitual pattern that maybe brings up a desire to look at pornography. In that moment, understanding that what you are experiencing is energy and that energy as it flows into the mind may run at certain pathways and it is from those pathways that we initiate certain behaviors. Brahmacharya is the point at which you may intervene with that energy and decide how it is you want to direct it, direct it. And with Brahmacharya, we have a natural respect of our energy begin to emerge. Understanding that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, only transformed and transmutated and transferred, we can look at this foaming, broiling mass of chemistry and energy as something to master, something to become the technician of, like a sound engineer pushing up the treble, dropping the bass, maybe adding a little bit of delay so that we have the space to respond consciously to how it is that we feel. Will we take this energy and move with it? Will we transform it or will we allow it to dictate our day? Something to keep in mind here as well is that we get whatever energy it is we engage in. We get what we give. For example, if you want to go for a run today and at some point you find yourself sitting on the couch scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, you might find after 30 or so minutes that you have sitting energy. You have couch energy. And you think about going for the run, because you're perceiving that run through sitting energy, you think, oh, I don't have the energy to go for a run. Of course, because you have sitting energy. In order to get running energy, you get up and move. This goes with everything. I want to be loved. I want to experience loving energy. Will it come to me or will I experience it as I give it? If I want to feel confident and secure in my body, am I going to try and trick myself into that position or can I go and support the confidence of somebody else? Can I give a stranger a real compliment? So uplifting their confidence and through that process, my own. Brahmacharya is that point where we may transform how it is that we feel 
by consciously responding to what is emerging. And brahmacharya is more accessible, more intuitive, and more usable when we factor in the previous yamas. When it comes to how I'm going to respond to this energy, am I going to respond in a way that perpetuates harm or mitigates it? Am I going to respond in a way that is in harmony with the truth, or am I running from it or numbing it? Am I going to respond in a way that allows the theft of my attention, the theft of my energy, the theft of my presence, or am I going to move with this energy? These ideas begin to serve as this holistic body that overlays our perception, helping to clear the mental modifications, the chitavrittis, that so frequently distort our connection with ourselves and the world. Moving on, the final yama is aparigraha. Aparigraha means non-possessiveness, non-attachment, non-coveting, and the trusting of abundance. It means non-greed, acting instead with a virtuous orientation towards abundance, abundance being a quality of the universe rather than a quantity of things we perceive to be in the universe. If you ever feel lacking in abundance, abundance often being related to financial security, if you ever feel broke, which is a real feeling, not denying that whatsoever, but in those moments, to be reminded and oriented back towards abundance, go outside and look at a lawn and identify the abundance of grass blades. Open your ears and tune into the abundance of sound, the abundance of birds, the abundance of cars, the abundance of speech. Go into your body and experience the abundance of sensation. Flickers and shimmers and moments of temperature, sensation, constantly emerging into awareness. An abundance of felt sensation. Aparigraha is the non-attachment to what is. It is the recognition that ownership is an illusion, that control is something that perpetuates the theft of your peace, the harm of your sanctity, and the disruption of absolute truth of universal abundance. Ultimately, aparigraha is the recognition that if it can change, then it is not the infinite, everlasting, and unchangeable self the Godhead which you are, the divine aspect of consciousness that is the backdrop of all reality. And this may sound just conceptual to you at this point, this connection to divinity, connection to God, if you're comfortable with that word. I'm beginning to get more comfortable with it. Through these practices, through the practices of the eight limbs, you may 
come into contact with the direct experience of what it is I am discussing here. This unchanging self is that which you are, that which you will always be, and anything that has the nature to change cannot be owned, for it is subject to the law of decay. This comes down to both material possessions, to relationships, to feelings and sensations, attachments to motivation, attachments to perception, attachments to status, attachments to ranking, to seeing the societal position that you maintain dependent on your perspective of where you are in relation to other people's status. The practitioner of Aparigraha has released the mistaken identifications with external phenomena. This practitioner does not equate their self-worth with how much they own, the number in their bank account, the number of cars in their driveway, the number of accolades and achievements they have attained. This practitioner enjoys possessions, but they are not owned by them. They enjoy their work, but they are not owned by that. They can have without possessing, they can create without holding, and it's because of this that their work lasts forever. Parigraha is a tool of introspection that allows us to ask ourselves, do I need to be in control? And we ask that question using the previous yamas. Is this idea of control contributing to peace or is it creating harm? Is this idea of control truthful? Is it reality? Is it realistic? Or is this an idealistic projection that I am maintaining through egoic defense? Is this need to control thieving me of my peace? Is it thieving others of their peace? by projecting our insecurity with the wild uncontrollability of experience onto those in our lives that may process these emotions for us? Is this need to be in control the correct use of energy? Am I spending energy worrying about the future, the future which does not exist and will not until it does and cannot be assumed until experienced? Parigraha is a tool for understanding our place, understanding our position, understanding what is and is not within our control, what does and does not need to be obsessed over. And ultimately, it is the liberation from that which we are attached to in the external world, which we cannot own, cannot have. And this makes life a lot more enjoyable. And to even bring it into a materialistic perspective of this, remember when I got a guitar years ago? It's a guitar behind me. No, it's not. got this guitar years ago, and I was so scared of playing it because I spent so much money on it. Because I was attached to the work that I had done to attain that money. I was attached to what that money represented. I was attached to this guitar as a reflection of my hard work, as a reflection of me ultimately identifying myself with some external thing. And this attachment to this guitar, both its perfect, beautiful, unscratched state, disrupted my ability to play it with vigor and intensity and the passion that may be elicited through non-attachment, through the use of something for what it is rather than what I think it to be. And one day, somebody knocked it over 
and it got a big old scratch on the front, and it broke a piece of my heart. Years later, reflecting on this, I can see that as a visceral example of what attachment is. That because of my attachment to what this thing should be, it interrupted my ability to integrate with it as it was, to get my fullest satisfaction and enjoyment from it. And so we ask ourselves, do I enjoy this thing because I own it or because I use it? Do I enjoy this person because I own them or because I love them? Am I in control of this experience and the outcomes that may be generated or is my ultimate control merely how I respond to how I feel? Aparigraha is acting with intention and letting go of expectation. It is a non-attachment to the idealistic conditioning that serves to take you from where you actually are to where you think you should be. Aparigraha is a recalibration back to center, back to who and what you are, to how and what you're thinking to how and what you're feeling so that you may start with what is and let go of what is yet to be. Mm, I'm starting to get it. Um, check in with me in another couple of lifetimes and we'll see how I feel about that statement. I'm going to end today's episode with a quote. Thank you, Jay and Kylie, for providing me with this quote. Experts Alan Finger and Wendy Newton explain, the eight limbs are both a sequential and holistic practice. There is an internal logic to moving from one limb to the next in given order, but the eight limbs can also be applied as a holistic practice in which all the limbs function simultaneously and synergistically. From this holistic perspective, the practices are done in a way that best suits the needs of the individual in order to evolve spiritually. So thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me on this exploration through the yamas, through the first of the eight limbs of yoga. In the next episode, we will discuss the nayamas, the guidelines for how we can engage with ourselves in a way that contributes to our ongoing involution. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review. Five stars. Thank you very much. If you didn't enjoy today's episode, then just keep your mouth shut. And if you feel like supporting the podcast, you can join the community. Link in the description below so that I can afford to continue reading books and speaking words. I love you. I love you. That's all. See you next time.